Welcome to the Henry George Program. I'm Mark Molino, and I'm joined by co-host Jacob Schwartz-Lucas, representing Earthsharing.org and the Robert Schalkenbach Foundation. This is a program dedicated to finding practical answers to the housing crisis, economic volatility, inequality, and environmental degradation here in the Bay Area and beyond. We compare and contrast ideas of the 19th century economist Henry George with that of both historical and contemporary thinkers. Also addressed are issues ranging from artificial intelligence, automation, and universal basic income to city planning and land value tax, a concept popularized by George. This week, we are joined by James K. Galbraith. Galbraith is the author of The Predator State, Inequality and the Industrial Change, The End of Normal, The Great Crisis and the Future of Growth, and many other books. He's a professor at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs and has written for The Nation, Mother Jones, The Baffler, and many other journalistic outlets. Welcome, James Galbraith. Thank you. Okay, so a bit of a noisy, uh, noisy phone call, but we'll do what we uh, what we can. So, uh, a book you released last year uh, has the title "Inequality: What Everyone Needs to Know." Uh, what would you say for the the short version for a radio audience? What is what everyone needs to know about inequality? <laughs> I would tell them to take a look at the book. <laughs> uh, there's a, a the book covers a good deal of uh, uh, of ground, including uh, how the uh, issues are uh, how inequality is measured uh, and what the uh, what the sources of rising inequality have been uh, and uh, some of the controversy, recent controversies over whether inequality is destined to rise indefinitely. So one thing that was uh, of much interest to uh, us is there uh, you talk a bit in the book about the idea of uh, as an, as a you know alternative or replacement to the high marginal uh, income tax rates in the past is uh, a, a land value tax as a progressive uh, alternative to uh, basically uh, yeah as a source for public revenue that would be in fact uh, progressive and 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 uh, help the economy uh, what what, what uh, would you like to speak well, it's more not, it's not a new idea as you've uh, as you're well aware the notion that uh, one should always tear, uh, tax the the scarce factor, which is the, which is which is land, uh, goes back to David Ricardo and became uh, a, uh, a massively popular uh, doctrine and uh, policy proposal uh, in North America as a result of the work of Henry George, uh, and it's a you know, an intrinsically sensible idea uh, because it places the uh, the burden of taxation on. Uh, the asset that acquires the, whose valuation essentially, uh, is, uh, most reflective of, uh, of the, uh, of the underlying economic circumstances. And it says that the taxes should not be borne by labor and they shouldn't be borne on profits either. If you could distinguish profits from rent, uh, it's rent that you should be taxed. Yeah, uh, and, and it has, it has a record of, of being, you, you've noted, uh, success of uh, of of basically public ownership of land in in China, you see this in in cities such as Hong Kong, but uh, also uh, elsewhere. Uh, well, I wouldn't know about Hong Kong, which has got uh, uh, obviously a very different system. Uh, but uh, the uh, in the in the People's Republic, as a result of the revolution, land passed into the ownership of the state, usually of the province or municipality. Uh, and the result of that is that the uh, land rents are paid directly uh, to the government. There isn't a traditional landlord 
class uh, that was, was, was effectively they were the target of the revolution, uh, and the consequences that the, that the municipal governments have uh, uh, ample funds of revenue, which they can then reinvest in uh, uh, in, in public improvements, uh, which in turn, of course, uh, increases the value of the, of, of the land even further. Clearly, the consequences are very visible in modern China. Uh, you can see it in the degree to which uh, the cities have improved uh, their infrastructure over the past uh, you know, 40 years, uh, which has been uh, big, uh, much of an extraordinary thing. You've stated that uh, China, in some ways, is the most Georgist country in the world. Now, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that association for a couple reasons. I got that idea from a Chinese economist who had drawn this link, and uh, I read the paper, and I thought, yep, this is right. How how is it the most Georgist economy in the world, and what are some ways in which it's not Georgist? Well, uh, there's, of course, a direct link insofar as uh, the father of Republic of China, Sun Yat-sen, uh, the author of the Revolution of 1911, uh, was a, uh, a a devotee, a student of, of, of Henry George. So there was a, uh, a clear uh, uh, and not at all indirect influence of George's idea. Uh, but when you go from there to the to the Revolution of 1949, uh, it, it's a, a blend of, of, if you like, Georgism and uh, the Chinese version of Marxism, uh, which targeted, as I said before, the, the, the land-owning classes and passed uh, most of the ownership of land into the hands of the public sector. So it's it, where it goes considerably beyond George, obviously, who was in favor of taxing uh, land value to simply appropriating it. Uh, but we're now 50, 60 years past that point, uh, and the uh, uh, the, the, if you like, almost fortuitous consequence uh, is that they uh, practically alone in the what used to be called the third world, the Chinese cities have 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 uh, uh, extraordinary capacity to maintain the development of their infrastructure uh, ahead of the growth of their own population, uh, and that's as I say in most in most cities in in, in relatively poorer countries. That's not what you observe at all. You see people crowding in uh, to the cities and the electricity and the water systems and the roads uh, don't keep up, uh, whereas uh, uh, it's quite obvious that in China they largely do. Well, and you, you've noted uh, that, yeah, it's we have trouble keeping the infrastructure right here in the Bay Area in all of California. Property tax has been limited, and, uh, yeah, the, the financing has, has largely become a, a constant uh, question of how it's done uh, when, in fact, uh, yeah, a taxation on, on land is a very kind of natural way that you can actually self-finance your infrastructure. You would know the California scene better than I do, but I have the impression that there is a, a legacy of the Georgia's tax idea uh, in uh, in the financing of California's water system. Uh, don't press me for the details on that, but that's one thing I think that uh, uh, there are places in the United States where uh, where where these ideas took hold uh, and uh, uh, continue to ha- to have a legacy. But on the other hand, in uh, you know in, in much of the country uh, where you have uh, effectively landowners writing the uh, underlying statutes of state constitutions, 
uh, it's much harder to to achieve this purpose. And in Texas, for example, which is the state I've lived in now for 32 years, there's a constitutional provision in the state that prevents the property tax at the state level. It's still possible to do it, and it is done at the local level to finance uh, public schools and, uh, and utilities and so forth. Uh, but at the state level, uh, it isn't, and that obviously reflects the power of the landowning classes uh, when the Texas state constitution is drafted. I, I guess if you, if you were looking towards China as being one of the the more Georgist economies, I'd say you have to look at California as the least Georgist. Our, our constitution, you basically bars any level, uh, and and yeah, uh, basically the assessment level of property taxes vastly out of date. It's 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 a constant. Oh well, that of course yes. So the the, the propositions of, of when was it the 1980s uh, were as anti-Georgist as you could be. No question about it. So uh, as as you talk about yeah, just the kind of classical economic endorsement of this idea and and, and many modern economists finding uh, uh, you know uh, favor in it as well it's uh, it's interesting to note how uh, difficult it is to fit in with basically the paradigms of, of modern economics if you talk about growth models uh, we would see something as the two-factor model of, of capital and labor where there is no room to even say that land exists uh, this is a major problem with the way in which economics uh, has been uh, constructed and the way in which it's taught. As you say, uh, the uh, uh, the two factors of production that you're going to encounter in a typical textbook are capital and labor. Uh, resources in general, land in particular, are not separated out. Uh, I tell my students that as an exercise, would they please go back to their workshop and bring something in at the next class that they have constructed purely out of capital and labor, that is to say, out of machinery that they have at hand in their own labor. They say, and nothing else? And I say, yes, nothing else. Uh, and they point out to me that it's really difficult to do that unless you have some, uh, you know, some resources that you're working on. I can't knit a, sh- a shawl without yarn. You can't sew a shirt without cloth and want to go down the list. Uh, but uh, if you pick up the textbook, uh, it appears that everything is made without, uh, by some uh, miraculous process, without without the intervention of, uh, of, of raw uh, materials and resources uh, of, of, the, of the products of the land, and that uh, is something which uh, would have astonished the the economists of the of the uh, 18th and and up through the middle of the 19th century, uh, even to the end of the 19th century, for whom, of course, these questions were, were fundamental. They understood very clearly that they, their whole sense of the, of the of the class structure, the, the factors of production, rested on a distinction that was tripartite uh, between landlords, capitalists, uh, and labor. So, so when the models we use tend to miss so much of of how society and the economy actually works, uh, what is you know how does a con- you know economics uh, how how does it adjust? How do I guess public uh, figures in, you know economics? How, what should and what can they do to uh, to I guess remedy this? Well, I mean, I I, I think that a great deal of what passes for uh, modern economics simply needs to be superseded. Uh, and that the uh, uh, that there is uh, there are a whole sequence of, of, of traditions that are worth uh, worth studying, worth teaching, uh, but that the what what the the, the particular uh, framework that we've just been discussing isn't among them. 
uh, they again one can go back to Adam Smith, to David Ricardo, to uh, uh, to Marx and George and, and uh, Schumpeter and Paine, uh, and even a certain figure named John Kenneth Galbraith, and all of these people who had a uh, uh, a wide understanding of the uh, both the technical and social conditions under which they lived uh, contributed something to that is. Uh, socially and politically important. Um, the neoclassical tradition is largely dedicated to obscuring uh, what is socially and politically important uh, and to creating a uh, an image in people's minds that the uh, society is wholly cooperative and that the market provides a just distribution of, uh, of the gains uh, each according to each according to its productivity. Uh, and this is uh, uh, to say uh, it's not it's it's not a way of of uh, analyzing the world in which we live that bears much by way of examination. So, insofar as you're, you're teaching a uh, curriculum that that challenges the orthodoxy of neoclassical assumptions, how, how difficult is that to basically uh, pass muster, or or I guess of the students and the uh, administration of of something that doesn't send to, to, to be in step with what the rest of economics is teaching. Well, I have no difficulty uh, deciding what it is that I want to teach. And any, any professor uh, who is uh, worthy of the name is going to make those decisions based upon what they think uh, is, the, is, the, is right to have in their curriculum. Uh, the students, of course, uh, are highly responsive because uh, they are they, these these uh, authors of this material uh, is uh, you know reflects their own um, let's say observed and intuitive sense of the world. I have a wonderful time with my students in Texas uh, introducing them to the to the work of, of Thorstein Veblen, for example. For example, and Veblen's uh, hierarchy and social structures, the laboring classes and the industrial and the leisured classes. Uh, is uh, uh, something that they instantly recognize and instantly identify with the uh, with the gender roles that Babelin describes in his uh, his masterful depiction of, uh, of of the continuity of economic life from prehistoric times to the present. Uh, so uh, 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 the students are not not a problem. I, I, I have been uh, uh, introducing them to this material for for 30 years now, with uh, and they've, they've taken to it, I think, with a good deal of pleasure. So I guess I find that always kind of, you know, uh, interesting that when you have, you know, uh, iconoclasts, you know, Veblen, uh, Galbraith, and many others, that how does the orthodoxy, how does it maintain such such a stranglehold on, I guess you could say, public policy and, and so much when uh, people have a natural inclination to... to just see with common sense, it doesn't reflect so much of how the world is. Well, I think the answer to that is straightforward. You pick up the textbooks and you look at the index and you discover that the names that we're mentioning are not present at all. And even a figure who managed to make himself largely unavoidable for a century, uh, specifically John Maynard Keynes, uh, is, is reduced to a caricature of who he actually was. Uh, and a figure like Henry George, who was uh, uh, you know, a, a threat in many ways to the uh, leading uh, political forces of the late 19th century is dropped uh, altogether. 
So this is uh, something which uh, I think a, a good life lesson for, for undergraduate students, graduate students as well, is that if you want to understand the history of, of a subject which is engaged with the political and social issues of, of, of the time, uh, you have to uh, do some digging on your own, and you have to you have to bring a, a, a critical spirit and a certain amount of energy to the task. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself largely misguided. So yesterday, I, uh, I primed you with this question. I know that um, both uh, land value tax as well as you know creating the ideal monetary uh, policies and deficit spending policies are are really important to you in, in terms of alleviating poverty and just overall creating a, a more prosperous society. And, um, you know, I, I sent you this little thought experiment, and I, I'll read it for our listeners. It's uh, if aggregate demand is raised, the surplus generated also raises the value of land. So the benefits are largely funneled from those more deserving, the poor, the innovative, etc., to wealthy rent seekers. I'm referring to Ricardo's Law of Rent, where most surplus goes to landlords. A simple example is that investments in public transit, for instance, raise the the values of uh, of land nearby um, as a pure windfall to the owners. Given this dynamic for good things to raise the value of land, uh, what would you prioritize first? A fully realized Georgist, full-on uh, tax bads, not goods system, or two, the ideal monetary and deficit spending methods for raising aggregate demand. Uh, I personally think that these two goals are synerg synergistic if done together, but uh, you know, for the thought of this, the thought experiment, uh, what would you implement first? You know, th this is uh, uh, a, a, I, I, I'm with you on the idea of synergy, and I think it's not particularly useful to ask which of these two things you should ideally do first. Uh, if one has a chance, one ever gets a chance, uh, to restructure the way economic policy and tax policy are uh, implemented in this country, it will be a chance to do both of these things at once uh, and not to uh, make a, 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 a time scaling which is going to cause uh, difficulties uh, in the implementation phase. Uh, so I'm going to duck your question by agreeing with you with saying that as you pursue a policy of full employment, uh, it is important uh, to uh, pursue a policy of fair distribution. Uh, and you're quite right that there's a there is an inherent tendency uh, for specific investment programs to raise the value of the adjoining land and to raise the uh, uh, wealth of the adjoining landowners. This is, of course, the way in which American cities are developed. It, they're developed largely under the control of developers. That's what developers do. Public infrastructure, therefore, is, is heavily lobbied to serve uh, those interests. Uh, and the result is the distortion of the income distribution that gives us so figures like, just to take a, uh, a, uh, an example, Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, if that's not a desirable uh, way to have the society and its politics structured, uh, then it would be useful to start thinking about what else to do. Uh, and as I think you're pointing in the right direction, that, that, that the burden of taxation should fall on the on the windfall gains. It's, uh, uh, it's 
a, a fundamental feature of our society at present, but it does not do that. Would you say something like a land value tax would stop people like Donald Trump who generate their wealth and parlay it into more wealth and more political influence? Um, would, would that be an effective means of, of, of doing that? And, you know, because I see on a lot of these companies, um, you know, their assets, you, you, see, you see the word profits, right? But a lot of that is just very uh, prime real estate that these, these companies are holding. And so when you, you see these uh, very large an analyses of like the total land rent in the United States, or the total resource rents in the world, they're uh, drastically underestimated. Uh, so, so do you think that, um, you know, ba basically something like a Georgia system of land value taxation, maybe excise taxes, resource taxes, would do a lot in terms of not only creating, uh, maybe reducing poverty, but also reducing the propensity for the system to be controlled by a wealthy group of rent seekers. Well, that's clearly the idea, and whether one could implement it, uh, in the, uh, given the, the, you know, the current structure and control over assessments, uh, is another set of questions. Uh, but that is the, that is the idea, and, it, and, and, you know, it's a question not only of where taxes fall, but, uh, where where they should be uh, lifted and on whom the burden should be lessened. Uh, if you have, a, if you take the tax off of labor, uh, you're going to have, a, it's going to be much easier for people to have employment. Uh, if you take it off of, off of, of, of uh, non-rent profits, of economic profits, well, you're going to expand the scope for uh, profitable investment. What you want to do is then to, to place the tax burden to the extent that you can uh, on uh, on speculative gains, uh, and that has the effect of uh, encouraging people to use land uh, in appropriate ways, uh, to take advantage of the uh, high value of land, uh, and to, uh, uh, to in order to to meet the tax burden on that value, you have to you have to put it to a productive use. So you get uh, a, a double advantage by having a tax system of this kind. Uh, now, again, short of the uh, of, of the situation we were discussing earlier, it's extremely hard to get from there to, uh, from here to there uh, because, of course, uh, as you can easily see, the political system is dominated uh, by the existing structures as well. So it's not to say that I would pay any price. Uh, to achieve that goal, uh, but that if you could achieve it, you would have a significant improvement in performance. Well, when we talk about what is a better policy, it's, I, I guess it's always, it's never true that policy exists in a vacuum. It's, it's influenced by culture, cultural norms. Uh, one thing you've commented on is just the, the greed is good culture of the 80s, how much has this changed, uh, corporate governance and so on. And uh, yeah, I, I think if you talk about uh, just implementing a, a better tax, it's very different than just basically looking at the foundations of a econ uh, you know economy. Is greed good? You know, people might say, "Oh, that's what e economics says." That's not really what you know people would say is, uh, you know, certainly certainly true. Uh, so, do you think 
do you think people are, are seeing the end of, of just basically the idea that if you uh, benefit greed and uh, just, you know, if you benefit monopolies and just everything of people trying to make wealth for themselves, it will benefit, benefit us all? Because I think a lot of people are becoming uh, disillusioned with that idea. I'm disinclined to get into a you know, deep discussion of, 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 of human nature, but let's just put it this way. Uh, what is the sort of talent that we should uh, be looking to to be in the primary leadership position in a country like ours? Well, let's ask ourselves, what are the challenges uh, that we face in the period ahead? Well, let's just say one of them is climate change. Uh, and in order to deal with climate change as best we can, uh, we need to have uh, a, uh, a, a leadership which understands the issue uh, and which has uh, the, both the will and the capacity to devote resources uh, to dealing with it. Okay? And now, the simple question I would ask is, are you going to find that kind of talent uh, in a society dominated by real estate developers? Uh, the question answers itself. I think it's clearly no. If you want some evidence for that, I direct your attention across the continent to Washington, D.C. at the present moment. Uh, and so uh, uh, it seems to me clear, clearly the case that uh, we should be uh, thinking about fundamental reform of a national system uh, which has the effect of, of placing uh, the the current leadership, not just in power at the moment, but in a position where it will be, it is and will continue to be on a major source of uh, political power. And that, that to me, just a, uh, I think it's obviously a very big problem about uh, uh, how we'd like to have the, gov the country governed uh, leads directly to the conclusion that one should diminish the power of the real estate development. Uh, developers as a class. And I think one, one thing that overlaps with this is when you are advising policy, when you are determining policy, uh, people may look at a certain uh, objectivity, which may not be so. For example, growth. We all agree in general, growth can be a good thing. Uh, when you look at GDP uh, and what this reflects, it isn't exactly uh, the best idea of what growth is. When something is uh, benefits at all and may not show up in GDP at all. Uh, would, you, I, would you like to comment on that? Well, uh, sure. Growth, growth national product, growth domestic product. Uh, these were concepts that were developed in the 1930s uh, and implemented in the 1940s and, uh, and, and became, they became major policy objectives in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and all of this was at a time when the uh, the objective of the statistics was, was not to generate, uh, to meet social needs or to, to, uh, to, to pursue uh, some broad set of social objectives, uh, but to maximize production, purchasing power, uh, to some degree employment, uh, but also to provide the, the tools for administering an economy in the stress of war, uh, wartime and World War II and in uh, in an effort to provide a management system that assured corporate profits through the 50s and 60s and into the 70s. We're now in a, we have a different set of, of problems and priorities. The inadequacy of uh, GDP accounting to deal with 
uh, environmental issues, to deal with uh, larger social questions, to get the balance between public goods and private goods, between what my father called uh, uh, private affluence and public squalor, to get that balance right, what's called the social balance, uh, has been known for, for well over half a century. Uh, what we have not done is been able to get away from these metrics in order to to develop for ourselves a, uh, a more functional uh, understanding of what it is we should be uh, designing policy around. So, yeah, uh, the, I don't think anybody should have ever been under the illusion that a higher gross domestic product uh, was associated with a better uh, society. Um, but the, 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 the task of, of, uh, of going beyond uh, the metric of the growth rate of GDP is one which is still not very far advanced. You mentioned earlier that you know a, a major problem is that if we want to create change, we have to get the people who are currently very wealthy as a result of the system being designed the way it is to change their mind and thus give up uh, the source of their wealth. And it's not just the, you know, rich people's interests that are tied up in real estate. It's regular people as well, um, even though they're getting crumbs in comparison. Uh, you know, for instance, I just saw this in Oregon. There was a small town that were going to raise their property taxes. So it, it was somewhere on the order of, uh, you know, $20 more a year to have a library in their town. And rather than increase the property tax, they said, nah, you know, get, get rid of it. We don't, we don't want a public library anymore. And therefore, that town has, uh, you know, no library. And the same thing goes for schools and you know, other public services. So thinking about how to mobilize a large group of people to, to stand up to this real estate lobby that you talk about, um, how can that be done in a very practical way so that you can remove uh, the, the, you know, the voters' interests from uh, basically being small-time uh, rent seekers themselves? Well, that's a, a very challenging question for which I certainly don't have a better answer than, than you've got. The, uh, the principles of democracy tell us that the, uh, uh, that the uh, let's say those who are not uh, real estate developers are more numerous than those who are, uh, and uh, if their voices were equally weighted and equally he uh, 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 equally heard, uh, then the structures of policy would be very different from what they are. Uh, so this is a continuing political struggle. I'm not going to pretend that I'm uh, leading any any major parade here. My function as a uh, uh, as an academic, as a college professor sometime writer on these questions, to simply to lay out the issues as uh, clearly as I can uh, and hope that those who have uh, both the interest and the will to to advance them in the political sphere uh, are helped by uh, by that work. Uh, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to for a moment uh, understate the difficulty of it. If it were easy, it would have happened. You, you, you've spoken about the role of an economist to predict and warn, but how that is uh, burdened with, with uh, the Cassandra paradox of those who are who are predicting bad news 
people don't like to listen to them. Uh, and you, you wrote in an article, uh, I told you so, about your memo about the uh, housing subprime crisis uh, before uh, 2008. And uh, yes, and, and just basically how uh, we don't listen to uh, you know, our, our uh, policy advisors when it's, it's news we don't want to hear. Uh, what is this? I guess, well, what is the role of something for what is, do you think? Uh, uh, and, and it puts me in, in mind of, uh, I've forgotten who, 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 who wrote that it is very difficult uh, to persuade a man of something, to understand something when his livelihood depends on not understanding it. Uh, and that was very definitely the situation in advance of the uh, of, of, of the meltdown of 2007 to 2009. Uh, and so, yes, those of us who uh, were aware that this was an untenable situation uh, didn't get a lot of airtime. Uh, that's just part of the, that's certainly part of the, uh, of the, of, of, of the ball game that, uh, that we are engaged in. Uh, and something that we have to both live with and, and, and work against. Uh, but, uh, the, uh, it's a, uh, uh, let's just say, uh, not the first time that that happened. I mean, you, you, you talked about here how there is many bubbles and different commodities, and sometimes a bubble in the past would lead to good things, such as, you know, the uh, after broadband in the late 90s proved a bubble, at least we got broadband. Uh, real estate is a bit different. When you have a real estate bubble, uh, you end up actually having vacancies and real actual burdens uh, and, and not any actually use. It, it destroys capital. It doesn't create capital. Uh, it's, and I, I guess how... It, it, it seems like our policy is very badly addressed to deal with the idea of a, of a housing bubble. In fact, we still speak about growing wealth through uh, rising property values. Uh, do you think that could ever change where we don't say this is, uh, you know, this is how we create wealth for the middle class? You're raising a very, I think, interesting and significant point. If you, if you look at what uh, constituted economic growth uh, in the period just before the the uh, financial meltdown. A great deal of that was, uh, to the extent there was construction going on at all, it was uh, subdivisions in places like Florida, Southern California, uh, Arizona, uh, where uh, uh, you were uh, having things put up in great haste uh, and sold at highly inflated prices uh, to people who, who, who couldn't afford the payments. Uh, and so houses were being built uh, that in many cases were not going to be lived in at all. Uh, and in the course of building them, the payments made to the workers and to the contractors and so forth, uh, this, this was uh, fully entered in the accounts as, as, as economic growth. It is new new construction. That sale of that house is the sale of a newly produced product that enters into GDP. How long does it stay as a useful asset? Well, the answer to that is, in many cases, it never became a useful asset. Uh, but as soon as these houses were uh, foreclosed, abandoned, they deteriorate. Uh, and after a certain amount of time, there's simply a blight on the landscape, not only affecting, not only having basically uh, ex uh, uh, lost uh, the value of the time and effort that was put into their construction, but also dragging down the value of all the houses in the vicinity because our neighborhood's valuations depend upon uh, the general uh, 
climate in the neighborhood and not just on the quality of any particular house. If your neighbor's house is boarded up and abandoned, that's going to affect your property value. Uh, so uh, in, you have yeah. a, this uh, uh, highly ephemeral character to what we called economic growth in this period, and I think it would be fair uh, to uh, factor out, if you like, the destruction of capital value that occurred uh, and to uh, uh, subtract it from the, from, from the GDP uh, that was uh, calculated as having been added to in that earlier period in the boom. Uh, so, yes, I think there's a, a, a very interesting issue here, uh, not only about the, uh, the waste of resources that's involved, but also about the uh, uh, self-delusion in the, in the accounting. And we end up, uh, as a country, much poorer than we would be if we had, in the first place, thought and invested wisely uh, in the, uh, using the capital and labor and resources that we have to build things which had some endurance, uh, which we could use over long periods of time, uh, and which would then support uh, living standards uh, for larger numbers of people. I mean, a house is just, right. even at, at, its, at its best, simply supports the living standard of the family that lives in it, uh, and uh, you know, adds nothing to the living standard of, the, of, of its neighbors. Uh, so by having this peculiar view that uh, uh, that uh, in our accounting, I think we greatly overstated uh, contribution of past growth to current prosperity. I've heard an interesting theory, a reinterpretation of John Stuart Mill from Mason Gaffney, and he said that one of John Stuart Mill's best ideas is his. I, I don't know the exact name of the theory, but it's the rate of capital turnover. And it has some really interesting uh, spending implications that are very related to the, the Georgist philosophy. And that is that you should spend money on things that create a lot of turnover, create uh, long-lasting jobs. I've heard you say that, you know, investing in um, building a, a freeway or, or bridges and things like that aren't totally bad, but tends to not create um, a lot of the kind of, you know, sustained increases in aggregate demand, and uh, it, it tends to lock up uh, value in these, in these big projects that then don't turn over and really yield their benefits for a long time. And that's sort of analogous to uh, the problem of land rent getting caught up in land because there's not money available, say, when you get a loan to purchase a, uh, a warehouse or a shop front, uh, there's not as much money available to actually do pr real productive things with after you've paid the piper to afford that uh, location. So I guess maybe you could comment on some of the sort of uh, spending implications of what Gaffney uh, was talking about and you know, perhaps to a large degree, John Stuart Mill was hinting at. Uh, for a long time since I've taken up uh, John Stuart Mill, uh, but let me just say on on the work of Mason Gaffney that uh, this is a very remarkable figure of our time. Uh, every time I, I come across one of his essays, I find myself enchanted by it. Uh, and with a combination of fresh insight and clear writing style, uh, he's really a... a, a, a uh, 
a remarkable uh, presence uh, in our uh, in our in our intellectual lives and our policy discussions. So I'm a great fan of Mason Gaffney. Uh, in terms of the uh, um, of of the mix of longer lasting and uh, shorter uh, last a shorter duration economic activity, I think that. Uh, uh, part of what I understood Mason to be writing is that the structure of the taxes that we have, in particular, for example, sales taxes, uh, has a places an, a, an enormous burden on capital that has uh, that's used for high turnover activity. So uh, it is much uh, um, it this distorts the allocation of capital investment, let's say, in an urban area, away from things like shop, uh, uh, which, can, which, which promote employment and uh, economic life, uh, and toward things like parking lots, which don't, and away from shops, which uh, are tr- transacting goods, which have a high turnover and pay a lot of tax, uh, and in favor of shops that, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that, that uh, that don't have a turnover of goods. Right? One can think of tattoo parlors and, and uh, nail uh, shops, which are highly prevalent in, in low-income areas. Why is that the case? Well, it's because the, uh, the, uh, the way in which a, a, a turnover tax or a sales tax works uh, is to, is to uh, work against uh, the success of an enterprise which has a... Uh, uh, which has to uh, constantly renew its capital costs, its working capital. And I think that's the essential point that Mason was making, at, at least in the essay that, that I saw. Uh, but I highly recommend that if you have a doubt on the clarity of my exposition, just give him a call and let him explain it to you. So I guess one thing I'd like to ask you is about the kind of uh, modern tools and theories of, of economics to deal with the divide between urban and, and rural economies. It's something that you see is a lot of you know economic theory is pretty uh, agnostic to the idea that there is a difference between urban and rural economies. Uh, one thing you've recommended to help with uh, uh, inequality is raising the minimum uh, minimum wage. Uh, however, I, I think it personally I, I have some some thoughts that in cities where rent is uh, unaffordable, even an increased minimum wage won't help enough in areas where the problem is instead a depressed economy in a rural area, uh, maybe it isn't the exact thing they need compared to what people in cities need. Uh, do you have any thoughts about urban-rural divides in economics? Well, I think that's a question that bears uh, some some thought and discussion. Uh, the, I, I a key argument in favor of raising the minimum wage and of doing so on an even standard uh, is that uh, and it interacts with the, this interacts with the way in which the uh, governmental transfer systems, welfare systems work. So we now have a uh, an economy where uh, certain, including certain very large corporations. Uh, have a very strong presence in low-wage labor markets, uh, and their employees uh, come on board and immediately uh, are eligible for food stamps, for example. Uh, and so what's happening is that the, uh, uh, the employer's uh, use of an exploitatively low wage uh, is being subsidized by the taxpayer. Uh, and the argument for a higher minimum wage is, uh, you know, straightforwardly, 
that whatever else we expect, uh, employers should uh, uh, be uh, not not be in, in, in the position essentially of uh, acting in a kind of parasitic way on uh, programs which are intended to relieve the distress of very low-income people. If you're working for McDonald's, you should be making a wage that is uh, satisfactory, uh, adequate to keep you off of, of, of the goal. Uh, that's, uh, I think, one of the substantial arguments in favor of a, a significantly higher uh, minimum wage. Uh, the, uh, uh, would, would that then have an effect on the structure of employment? The answer to that is yes. Uh, it would tend to, to uh, I think, work in favor of increasing employment of self-employed people. Why? Because they're not paid wages. Uh, they're, you know, you're, you're doing, a, let's say, a food truck as opposed to a fast food uh, establishment. And that's a different uh, arrangement, and your, your pay is only dependent upon the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the degree of your economic success. Would it be a good thing to have more of that and fewer fast food joints? In my view, yes. And should the tax structure be uh, uh, constructed so as to take the tax burden off of uh, those kinds of enterprise, my view would again be yes. Uh, and so you would have a substantial more, substantially greater uh, uh, scope for, uh, let's say, for small enterprise under this system. Uh, is it an ideal solution to every social problem? No. Uh, but would it be an improvement over what we've got now? I think the answer to that is that it would be. Uh, coming back to the question of urban versus rural, uh, I I, I think you would see um, these transformations would be substantially more important uh, in low-wage sections of the country. Uh, I'm thinking about, for example, the south of Texas, uh, than they would be in the high-wage uh, and urban areas, where even the lowest and most menial service jobs are paid well above the federal minimum wage. So raising the federal minimum wage, I imagine, has very little effect. Uh, in San Francisco or New York, uh, but would make a uh, make a real impact in it and and substantially uh, improve um, the uh, both the quality and the uh, level of uh, economic life in, in in lower wage regions of the country. Yeah, I think that that does comment a lot about the pragmatism uh, that uh, your work and uh, as also you commented on your uh, father's work does in order to say in opposition to maybe the classical idealism of a competitive state where many small, uh, you know, no one is a price taker are able to uh, work in perfect competition. Uh, there's an idea that the modern economy doesn't work that way. Uh, in in the the we're celebrating the anniversary of the new industrial state, uh, in which you wrote about that. You know, this was the this is it's not something that uh, uh, your your father opposed when he wrote this that large firms basically uh, don't work in competition they in fact create their own demand they are price takers and we have to look to work with them in that sense and I think uh, uh, the uh, this is this is uh, you know, the, my father's lifelong struggle uh, was to bring the ec uh, economics uh, understanding of our economic life out of the 18th century and into the 20th, uh, and, you know, we, we should, I think, have gotten there by now. But the truth is, of course, that if you pick up uh, a textbook, then you're, you're likely to see 
uh, the starting point of uh, so-called perfectly competitive model. Well, what is the perfectly competitive model? It, uh, it is uh, a caricature of, uh, of a medieval uh, subsistence farm economy, uh, one in which there is no government, although obviously in medieval times there were very strong governments, uh, and but no 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 welfare system and no complex structures of production, just farming and uh, and and, and artisans, farmers and artisans, uh, and that is uh, really a preposterous way uh, to think about the world in which we live and in the the economic choices that we actually face, which are entirely uh, with a very very limited exception, right? practically entirely. Uh, structured by large interconnected organizations. Yeah, and uh, and in this in this sense, I think we have to look at we are going to have large firms. It's going to happen. I guess the idea is, in what way do we want them to act? And if we talk about large firms that produce new technology, we can say, well, that is what we want more of. If you talk about the kind of monopolistic tendencies of uh, of large uh, land owning interests, you could say this doesn't actually do anything to really improve. Uh, the the Commonwealth, and this is something that uh, regulation has a role to to jump in and and uh, to support the the Commonwealth. Uh, that's that's entirely right. Uh, I w- I would add to that though that there is also a a, a phenomenon which uh, is known to economists as the Schumpeterian quasi rent, which is the accumulations that occur to the successful innovator, the successful technologists, and so one has to ask what's the appropriate thing uh, to do with that. Uh, and my answer to that question is that we ought to be quite uh, quite accepting of the fact that when there is a truly successful technical innovation, it is going to transform market structures and it's going to concentrate income in the hands of small numbers of people. This is what the technology revolution did at the expense of a large swath of the industrial corporations of the country. Uh, but uh, then the question is, what do you do about those accumulations over time? Uh, and my answer to that is that the United States innovated over a century ago uh, the estate and gift tax, uh, which is precisely intended to encourage uh, people who do accumulate substantial wealth uh, to funnel it back into the community through universities, through uh, hospitals, churches, cultural institutions, foundations. Uh, and that we should be uh, conscious of this particular feature of our society. It's proven quite successful over time, always under attack from wealthy people who don't want to uh, uh, do this and who want to uh, create dynasties, uh, but uh, it is precisely uh, an area where uh, a strengthening of existing social institutions would help, uh, you know, help provide a much stronger foundation for the next century, just as uh, Teddy Roosevelt's policies did for the for the last one. A moment ago when you were talking about, if I'm phrasing this correctly, Schumpeterian-type rents and what I associate with, uh, you know, sort of the first-mover benefit and over the long run um, taxing these large uh, – yeah, the, these families, like, large uh, fortunes. Um, and y- you said that you thought it would be a good idea to encourage them to donate to universities and um, 
perhaps other cultural projects. And I wonder to what degree well, we you think – I mean, every, every university, every liberal arts college in the country benefits from this uh, ethos, which has been well-established now in the United States for a century. The question is not whether it exists, but how to strengthen it. But anyway, go ahead. Well, I'm wondering if it is a good idea to strengthen it and and not just put the money directly into the public purse and let the spending occur that way, because I see there being a somewhat pernicious force in that, okay, if I am Mark Zuckerberg or whoever, and you know I have an ulterior motive for donating to this university or that university, that a lot of harm can be done simply by the existence you know, of those funds used in that way. I mean, take an example that has a, is, is Georgia's historically is uh, land rent colleges did, according to Gaffney, who you were praising a moment ago, said that, uh, you know, they, those colleges would not let professors teach about the economics of Henry George because um, they had a direct financial interest in not having something like a Georgia's tax system. So, how 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 would you respond to that? What what could we do to reduce those um, perhaps pernicious incentives? Well, there 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 are of course many ways that one can uh, improve on this system, and there 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 are no there's no question that you can have uh, foundations that get too large uh, and that are uh, too permanently ensconced. Uh, becoming a sort of independent quasi government on their own. Uh, so there are lots of, lots of problems with the system. What I like about it, uh, and it, I, in comparison with the, uh, way things are done in other advanced countries, in particular with parts of Europe, uh, is that it creates a great deal of decentralization, uh, and therefore local autonomy for a lot of different kinds of institutions, particularly universities. Uh, and so they are less subjected to uh, the problem of fiscal austerity when the budget gets cut at the state level. Uh, whereas if you go to France, uh, or, uh, you find that, uh, or you go to England, you find that the universities really suffer uh, from being under the the thumb of the of, of the of the state of the public purse simply because uh, of the political pressures on the state. Uh, whereas in the U.S. Uh, there are multiple streams of funding, uh, public and private, uh, and the institutions have more flexibility uh, to deal with, uh, with 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 this kind of a problem. Uh, now that said, that doesn't that doesn't get away from the from the problem that Mason Gaffney called attention to, which is that you create a particular system and you create a vested interest in supporting that system, uh, and that's just something which one has to be. Aware of at every uh, at every turn, and uh, I think we ought to be past the point of thinking that there's a single ideal or perfect set of social arrangements. Uh, just as we should be aware that uh, uh, that uh, that the one we've the ones we've developed do have some advantages over some of their competitors. What about something like uh, a basic income? Uh, there's there's many forms of it, but you know, in other words. If a large fortune has been amassed, let's just divide it equally among everyone. And then, you know, if people have extra income and they want to donate to universities um, or, or whatever, they can do that. I mean, I've also thought about the possibility of something like a citizen's budget where, you know, 
citizens could vote, uh, you know, I do really want that bridge or I do really want the university funded. Therefore, I'm willing to give up a certain proportion of what I would get as a basic income to instead uh, fund this public work. And if a majority said yes, then um, then even the people who said no would have well, a proportion we, we, of their we basic We do that, income. of course, to a certain degree. We have uh, at, at the level of the city or the state, we have bond issues on which we vote all the time. Uh, so that's not an unfamiliar feature of our of, of the existing system. Uh, but let's go back to your your question about the the basic income. I am not a fan of universal basic income, universal citizen income scheme, uh, and I, there, there are two reasons for that. Uh, one is that uh, this this is a, a an idea which uh, has, uh, in my view, the suspect origin in the uh, fertile and dangerous mind of Milton Friedman, uh, and its advocates include a fair number of people who see this as a way of replacing a wide range of specific forms of assistance that we presently offer to people, uh, and I'm not sure that that's a good idea. Uh, secondly, and perhaps more fundamentally, it uh, seems to me that we do have a society that has a single uh, cultural um, uh, strong point, it is the idea that uh, there is value and uh, dignity and honor in work, uh, and that we should not be creating a system uh, which uh, 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 says that there's no distinction whatever uh, between working for a living and not working for a living. Uh, and I don't think there's any chance politically that you could gain broad acceptance for such a system. Uh, the system that we actually have uh, provides support for people to uh, educate themselves, and it provides, uh, it should provide universal health insurance, it provides social security and old age, protection against disability. Uh, these things are all, uh, uh, if you like, they're, they're phases of uh, people's lives, um, that are built around the proposition that a large part of the population is a working population, which seems to me to be right and proper and widely accepted value. Uh, and there's one other thing which troubles me about universal basic income, which is that uh, these are citizen-based, and we have a society in which a great many, a, a great part of the working population are not citizens. There, we have legal permanent residents. We have undocumented uh, 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 people. But just to take the people who are working here legally but who are not citizens, uh, they would become a separate class. Under Social Security, they're not a separate class. They have Social Security numbers, and they're entitled to Social Security benefits. Uh, and that strikes me as a much, much better system. It's work-based. Uh, it's based upon your contribution and uh, uh, to, the, to the society uh, and not upon uh, the abstract legal uh, concept of citizenship, which is a much narrower uh, uh, category. So I think on all of those grounds, uh, universal basic income is, a, is not an idea whose time has come. I, I would say personally, uh, it scares me when, it, when it's being introduced as a replacement for you know all other sorts of you know welfare and and, and social safety nets. I, I think I, it does give me some optimism when you see it as basically just giving. 
uh, you know, natural resources back to the people who it says it belongs to, such as Alaska's Citizens' Dividend. Uh, it doesn't say this is so we don't have to, you know, take care of public programs, but this oil, it might as well, you might as well get a check for it. That doesn't worry me quite so much. Well, uh, I guess uh, I would rather have uh, the benefit of a common resource go into uh, a, an investment program uh, for the, the, the benefit of everybody, not only who's presently living in the state, but who might be living there in the future. Uh, so that's a real difference from having a having you know a universal uh, you know, move to Alaska and we'll, and we'll give you a check, uh, which just I mean, it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world to have happen, but it doesn't strike me as uh, as as uh, having any really strong justification for it. I mean, why why just citizens of Alaska? After all, this is the United States. Why not citizens of the United States? Or if one says that the that the uh, oil is coming out of communities which are uh, in a purely uh, or substantially Native American communities, why doesn't the benefit just go to them? I, I don't know what the what the, well, what the justification yeah. for doing it the way they did it is, other than that Alaska had legal control of the resource and it was a politically uh, attractive thing to do at the time. Well, why not share, uh, say, economic rents, resource rents, etc., on some sort of international basis as well, so that uh, perhaps through a basic income or maybe, you know, some welfare programs that go to poor countries. Uh, it's I guess it's a huge, uh, difficult thing to coordinate, but in, in principle, uh, don't don't you think that would be a good idea if it was not singling well, I, out? For I, I example, think it has the same difficulty that we're just that we were just describing. But the issue of resource rents, of course. Uh, a great problem of many countries in the developing world is that they don't get the benefit of the rents from the resources that they actually control. That's not true of all developing countries, but it's been true historically of a substantial number of them, that they got very raw deals from the, uh, uh, the companies that they relied on uh, to extract the resources. Uh, so, uh, and then, of course, there's the question of how those, how those resources are used even when they are they go back into the hands of uh, of the local elite. But all of these are issues that are highly well well beyond my my, my pay grade. I uh, one is a citizen of a particular country, and uh, they uh, have have something to say about the political institutions of of the country you happen to be part of. It's much harder to to have a serious influence over those much more in other places. So I, I think it's about time uh, for us to wrap up. I, I just I just I guess like to note it's it seems it seems uh, you know booing that there is so much more I guess room and and uh, avenues for people questioning the orthodox as opposed to uh, you know a hundred years ago or so uh, Veblen himself was was terminated from Stanford University because the the widow of the rail baron uh, Leland Stanford she didn't like his his teachings especially as it, it reflected the as she said the coolies uh, today people aren't restricted from learning ideas that are considered dangerous by many uh, do, do you think the blossoming of, of I guess the opportunity to see these ideas means that we We'll have the. We will be moving ahead. How how optimistic are you that some of these ideas will take hold? I'm not optimistic at all. There's an enormous amount of self-discipline that will uh, that will restrict the spread of these ideas. But uh, that's what makes the uh, uh, talking about them interesting and, and and amusing. And I hope that uh, uh, that 
this project and your radio uh, program contribute something. This is the best one can do. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for having the time to talk to us today. Uh, we've been talking to uh, James K. Galbraith, uh, his uh, book from last year, uh, Inequality, What You Need to Know. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure.